The People's Pharmacy Podcast is supported in part by Cocovia. Cocovia cocoflavanols support both cardiovascular health and cognitive function by promoting healthy blood flow, transporting oxygen and nutrients to vital organs and muscles, including your heart and brain. Cocovia now comes in an even more concentrated formula. With 450 milligrams of cocoa flavanols, five times more than the leading dark chocolate bar and 15 times more than the leading cocoa powder. Cocovia has a proprietary process that preserves cocoa flavanols at the highest levels, and the product undergoes rigorous testing at every stage, which allows them to guarantee the highest level of cocoa flavanols per serving and to provide the purest, highest quality product possible. People's Pharmacy listeners can now try Cocovia for 25% off by using the code Peoples25 at cocavia.com. That's C-O-C-O-A-V-I-A dot com. Most people take their vision for granted until something goes wrong. What can you do to be proactive about your eyesight? This is the People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Do you ever wake up with blurry vision or burning sensation? Dry eyes can be incredibly uncomfortable. Are there eye drops you should avoid and others that might be helpful? What else can you do for dry eye syndrome? We'll learn some tricks of the trade from an expert. There are new treatments for several common conditions that can impair our vision. They include new drugs for age-related macular degeneration and glaucoma. Cataract surgery has become routine. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, find out how to take good care of your eyesight. First, this news. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. During the 20th century, American life expectancy rose fairly steadily. The 21st century is a different story, however. Research published this week in JAMA shows that U.S. life expectancy is dropping. It's not keeping up with that of other wealthy countries. The scientists analyzed data from the CDC and U.S. Mortality Database. They found that after 2014, adults between 25 and 64 years of age were dying prematurely from a range of causes. Drug overdose, alcohol abuse, and suicide stand out. However, many organ system malfunctions, such as heart and lung disease, also killed people at a higher rate than previously. The biggest increases in mortality were in the Ohio Valley and New England. Other areas in which the U.S. fares worse than most other high-income countries include adverse birth outcomes, adolescent pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections, HIV and AIDS, as well as injuries, homicide, and obesity-related diseases. The authors suggest that some of the U.S. health disadvantage is linked to socioeconomic changes, especially job losses in manufacturing, wage stagnation, and increased income inequality. An anesthetic approved nearly five decades ago continues to excite researchers. That's because over the last several years, ketamine has revealed new uses never imagined in 1970 when the drug was developed. A preliminary study published in the journal Nature Communications reports that a single intravenous dose of ketamine might impact people's drinking behavior. 
The investigators recruited 90 volunteers who acknowledged that they drank a lot of beer, although they had not been officially diagnosed with alcohol use disorder. During the first phase of the experiment, everyone was shown pictures of beer. Then they each drank a beer. The investigators recorded their reactions, including how much they wanted another beer. The volunteers returned a couple of days later and got one of three randomly assigned treatments. One group was shown pictures of beer as before, and a glass of beer was put in front of them. Before they could drink it, however, the researchers whisked it away and gave them a shot of ketamine. Another group saw pictures of orange juice, had orange juice served but removed before they drank it, and got a shot of ketamine. The final group also looked at pictures of beer, had beer put in front of them, and didn't get to drink it. They did not get ketamine. Ten days later, the people in the first group, beer pictures plus ketamine, reported a significant drop in their drinking, which persisted for nine months. The other two groups also reported drinking much less after nine months, although the initial drop was much less dramatic. More research is needed to determine if ketamine can actually help people drink less. Many people who suffer from migraines or headaches have told their doctors that inhaling cannabis reduces the symptoms. A previous study had found that a synthetic cannabinoid, nabilone, was more effective than ibuprofen for headache pain, but few people have access to it. In the current study, Washington State University researchers analyzed data from an app that tracks patients' migraine symptoms. They compared those before using medical cannabis purchased in Canada where it's legal and after. The data included more than 1,300 patients who used the app roughly 12,000 times for headache symptoms. Another 650 people tracked changes in migraines. Cannabis use cut migraine pain by nearly half and also reduced the pain of other headaches by almost as much. People did report using more cannabis as time went on, suggesting it loses its effectiveness with regular use. For the coming flu season, doctors may consider prescribing biloxivir, known as sofluza, a relatively new antiviral medicine. Disturbing reports from Japan suggest, however, that at least one strain of influenza A virus labeled H3N2 has developed resistance to this medication. A single mutation in the virus genome conferred this protection. The medication was widely used in Japan last year. Researchers believe that resistance is not widespread at this point, but may become a problem as the drug gains wider use elsewhere. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Have you ever experienced irritated eyes? Millions of people complain of a scratchy feeling in their eyes, as if they have something in them. They may experience stinging, burning, sensitivity to light, difficulty driving at night, or eye fatigue. If any of this sounds familiar, you may have dry eye syndrome. When your eyes are irritated, it's hard to read or work on a computer. Is there anything you can do about dry eyes? To find out, we turn to Dr. Peter McDonnell, professor of ophthalmology at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. 
He's director of the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Peter McDonnell. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Dr. McDonnell, there's this condition, and I've actually had a little problem with it myself, called dry eyes. I'm sure there's a much more sophisticated medical term for that. It seems on the surface to be a minor problem, but it can be incredibly disruptive. What causes dry eyes? Well, you're right. It's it's a very common, uh, often not appreciated, and it can be extremely disruptive and in, um, interfering with people's quality of life. It's not a particular cause of dry eyes, probably multiple causes. There are underlying diseases that people can have, such as rheumatoid arthritis, where the disease can not only affect the joints and the bones, but but actually the eye itself. Medicines can cause dry eye. There are certain medications, antidepressants, antihistamines, uh, blood pressure medications that, in addition to the good effects they have, why people are taking them, can have the effect of causing dry eye. But most of the time, there's no particular single cause um, that is causing this. We think it's a it's an inability of the eye to generate the uh, fluids that should cover the surface of the eye, keep it lubricated, keep it healthy. And as a result, a patient's vision can deteriorate and they can become very, very uncomfortable. A lot of people think it's not enough fluid. And that's why they go to the pharmacy and they look around for some sort of dry eye liquid that they can, you know, put in their eyes, uh, drops of one sort or another. And what we understand is it has more to do with oil than it. I mean, oil is a liquid, but it, it's not a lack of tears. It has something to do with this, what we call lipid or oil layer on, on the top of the eye and the glands that make this stuff. Can you, can you describe what's going on? Sure. It's much more complicated tears than what one might think. Uh, tears are uh, not just water. They're probably uh, composed of three different components, the aqueous or, or water component. There's a uh, lipid that is uh, generated by oil glands of the eyelids. And then there's a mucus uh, generated by goblet cells, uh, cells that produce a mucus that helps to get the tear film to spread evenly over the surface of the eye. And all three of those components are necessary for healthy tear film and healthy ocular surface. There are people who might for an oper or surgery, might need surgery, maybe because of a tumor. They, if they lose their lacrimal gland, they lose the water component and they'll get dry eye. There are people, their children that may be born with a condition where they have no oil glands in their eyelids, and they will have dry eye, even though the tear gland is normal and producing a, enough aqueous water component. They don't have the lipid component, so they're in big trouble. And then there are people that don't have the goblet cells, so they don't have the mucin, and they will get the dry eye, even if the oil and the water components are adequate. So it's not only the amount or the volume of tears, it's also the quality and the composition of those tears. And that's why 
it's it's not trivial sometimes, um, and people can't just diagnose themselves and go to the drugstore and pick up a little uh, eye drop. They may need to really see a, a professional that can help to determine exactly why they're having this problem and what the logical next steps are to get the best improvement. How many people are affected by dry eyes? It's one of the most common reasons that people go to an eye doctor in the United States. There are tens of millions of people with dry eye. We don't know exactly how many people are not diagnosed but have it. I suspect there are a lot of dry eye patients that do not realize they have dry eye. Maybe by listening to you, they'll learn that perhaps they need to be checked for that. Probably the majority of people in this country with dry eye have never been diagnosed as having it, but it's probably in the at least in the tens of millions. And what are the symptoms? How would someone know if they had undiagnosed dry eyes? They may feel discomfort. They may feel a dry, scratchy feeling in their eyes. They may find that uh, if they're in an environment, a dry environment, say near an air conditioning unit that's causing dry eye to blow on their eyes, all of a sudden their eyes become irritated and red. They may find that after they try to read for a while, their vision seems to blur out and they have difficulties. And that's because as they blink less, there's more evaporation. The tear film starts to break down. People who spend time on the computer or their smartphones after a while start to have problems. That's a pretty good predictor that they have some dry eye. And 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 it's a lot of uh, a lot of people with dry eye say after they're treated they say, "Boy, I, I now I realize I was always feeling my eyes before." And now that my dry eye is treated, I can take them for granted again. I'm not constantly aware of my eyes. So they may, they may not say it's actually pain or um, scratchy or discomfort, but they will say that they're somehow constantly aware of their eyes, that something's just not right, that they're not comfortable. I had a strange symptom that my ophthalmologist said was dry eye. I would wake up in the mornings and my left eye would start tearing. And I didn't think that had anything to do with dry eye. I mean, I, I had too much, too many tears uh, coming down my face in the morning in that left eye. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, that could be a symptom of dry eye, which surprised me. It, it eventually went away, but that seems counterintuitive. Well, a lot of people uh, accuse me of probably not being a real doctor if they come to me and they complain of tearing, and I tell them they have dry eye. <laughs> and, and they say, how can that possibly be? Didn't, didn't, uh, didn't I tell you I'm overflowing tearing? How, how can you tell me I have dry eye? And the, the reason we think that happens is that as the ocular surface becomes dry or the tear composition is not adequate, the surface of the eye becomes irritated. Dry spots form and and we get what's called a reflex tearing. It's like it's like if we scratch the eye, all of a sudden uh, our tear gland really contracts and squirts a whole bunch of tears into the eye, and that sort of overwhelms the little drainage tube, the little lacrimal punctum where that, that sucks tears out, and so you actually get a temporary overflow situation. So the underlying dry eye causes irritation that causes what we call reflex tearing or reflex hypersecretion of the aqueous tears 
causing an overflow. And the patients are most impressed by the overflow. And they go to the doctor and find out the underlying cause is dryness. They find it strange, but so you have to educate them about what's going on. We've been told that people should put some kind of a timer on their computer that will remind them to blink. Because when you get caught up in searching for something, you know, sometimes you might go a minute or two without blinking, and that's not good for dry eye. We know that reduced blink rate exacerbates dry eye, can bring it out uh, or make it much worse. People who develop Parkinson's disease, the neurologic disease, their blink rate goes way down, and they will often develop problems with dry eye. Surgeons operating through a microscope like eye surgeons do, at the end of the day, our eyes tend to be red, maybe vision's a little blurry because we're staring through the microscope and our blink rate drops way down. And people staring at their um, smartphones and their computer screens, just like you said, in, in fact, uh, do the exact same thing and they start to develop dry spots. A nice study of, of volunteer college students, so they're only 20 years old, completely healthy, no other sign of dry eye. If you sit them in front of computer screens and study their eyes carefully with video cameras, you show that after about 20 minutes of searching on the web, they will start to develop dry spots on their eyes because of the reduced blinking. So uh, taking a break every so often from computer work and uh, closing your eyes or remembering to blink is probably a very good idea. You're listening to Dr. Peter McDonnell, director of the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute. He's a professor of ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And Joe, ophthalmologists, I love that word, have a technical term for dry eye, keratoconjunctivitis sicca, S-I-C-C-A. Did you know that there are a lot of medications that can cause dry eye. I, I wonder if people are warned about that in advance, you know, like antihistamines, especially some of those older-fashioned ones like, like Benadryl, Diphenhydramine. And, you know, a lot of people take those medications and they don't even realize it. They're, you know, Tylenol PM, for example. Right, the, and it has the Diphenhydramine in it, but you don't recognize it. The PM is the tip-off. If, if you're taking a leave PM or any of those PM pain relievers, there's a good chance you're getting diphenhydramine. Well, you know, you also need to be alert to that uh, blink rate. I, I don't know about you, but when I'm staring at a computer doing a search, I'm not paying attention to how many blinks I'm performing. Oh, you're focused on what you're hunting down. Exactly. And, and that reflex tearing, that's a really interesting sign of possible dry eye. Who knew that tears were so complicated? After the break, we'll find out what eye doctors do if they develop dry eyes. Often hot compresses can be helpful, but how do you keep them warm? We'll get a nifty trick for treating styes. What are the most common causes of vision loss? We'll also learn about new treatments for age-related macular degeneration. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy podcast is sponsored in part by Kaya Biotics. 
K-A-Y-A Biotics offers the first probiotics, which are both certified organic and hypoallergenic. All probiotics are produced in Germany under laboratory conditions with high-quality ingredients and under strict regulatory oversight. The three available formulas are created for very specific purposes, such as strengthening the immune system, fighting yeast infections, and helping with weight loss. To learn more about Kaya Biotics probiotics and the important topic of gut health, you can visit their website, KayaBiotics.com. That's K-A-Y-A Biotics.com. Use the discount code PEOPLE for $10 off your first purchase. This podcast of The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by StoryWorth. The holidays are a great time to share special family stories. StoryWorth is an online service that helps loved ones tell the stories of their lives. Each week, StoryWorth sends them a thought-provoking prompt. You may never have thought to ask a question like, what have been some of your life's biggest surprises? They email the answers back to StoryWorth. At the end of the year, StoryWorth compiles the answers into a beautiful book with a photo you choose. This keepsake book is shipped to you for free. What family history will StoryWorth uncover for you? I wish I had learned about StoryWorth when my parents were still able to answer questions. I missed that opportunity with them. That's why I've asked StoryWorth to send you questions, Joe. One question they sent me made me remember my penny loafers as a teenager. I really wanted to fit in, but when I got them, they were terrible for my flat feet. I learned that I really need to follow my own sense of what's right. Preserve and pass on memories in your own family with StoryWorth, the most meaningful gift for your family. Sign up today by going to storyworth.com slash Joe, J-O-E. You'll get $20 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash Joe for $20 off. The stories you'll save are priceless. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. If you would like to purchase a CD of this show, you can call 800-732-2334. Today's show is 1,154. That number again, 800-732-2334, online at peoplespharmacy.com. You can also download the free podcast from iTunes. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, probiotic products made in Germany from certified organic ingredients. K-A-Y-A Biotics.com. Today we're talking about how to take care of your eyesight. We've been discussing dry eyes and we're about to learn more about how to treat them. We'll also find out about whether diet can make a difference, and if the preservatives in eye drops can cause problems. We're talking with Dr. Peter McDonnell. He's director of the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute and professor of ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. McDonnell, you were just talking about um, dry eyes and how college students who are staring into the computer for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes begin to slow their blink rate. But I'm guessing an eye surgeon who is doing some very intricate work doesn't have the luxury of pausing 
and taking a break to blink. You're, you're so engaged in what you're doing, your blink rate probably goes down pretty dramatically. So what do eye doctors do when they develop dry eyes? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, you can certainly blink for a, a fraction of a second, even if you're doing eye surgery, it's probably okay. Uh, but I think um, lots of uh, surgeons have learned over time they do need to remember to blink. But if they do have underlying dry eye, they probably do what everybody should do. They should go and get their eyes evaluated. We can actually measure the amount of tears that people's eyes are generating. And we can so we can measure if they're starting to decrease. And uh, there are a number of things that can be done between lubricating uh, teardrops or ointments. We have plugs that can help keep tears in the eyes longer. There are a couple of FDA-approved therapies, eye drops that have active drugs in them that help to reduce inflammation and increase tear production. So uh, probably even if you're an eye doctor or an eye surgeon, uh, you need sometimes to go and let a doctor check your eyes and uh, help figure out exactly the cause of your problem and what to do about it. So the doctor will take a look and see which of those three components of tears is the one that's causing the problem and then try to uh, adjust for that. That's exactly right. In fact, and sometimes it's, say, two of the three. So uh, the doctor might prescribe a certain treatment like lid hygiene, warm compresses for the eyelids to help encourage the oil secretions to be uh, more generous, and then also a uh, treatment for the aqueous component to increase tear production. Now, when you say warm compresses, we have gotten questions from people who say, you know, I can run a washcloth under the hot water and it'll be hot for maybe a minute. No, <laughs> maybe 30 seconds. But definitely not for the five or 10 minutes that my doctor has recommended I use a compress for. So is there a way to get around this problem? One person wrote to us to say, I found the solution. I use one of those um, hand warmers that you kind of uh, twist or something to activate, and then you stick them in your, in your mittens, and they keep your hands warm for an hour. She said, I, I use that, and I put it on my eyes, and it stays warm for a long time. But someone criticized her for saying, oh, no, that's dangerous for your eyes. So how can you keep your eyes warm and moist for more than just a short period of time safely? Well, that's a very good point. The skin of the eyelids is very thin and very delicate, and we don't want to expose it to excessive heat or some sort of potentially toxic chemical. So there are a couple of uh, strategies uh, that uh, can be done to uh, try to get longer effect. One is uh, there are these little devices that you can put in the microwave, and they'll heat up. And you have to, of course, not over-treat them, get them too hot. And they will stay hot for quite a while. And then uh, one of my professors, uh, very cleverly, there people get what's called the sty of the eyelid, a swelling of one of the glands that can be quite extensive. And he's um, popularized a, a treatment, and you'll laugh at this, but you microwave a, a little baked potato, a little potato, 
And that potato, as you know, uh, if you've cooked baked potatoes, that potato may stay quite warm for 15, 20, 30 minutes. Oh, so yeah. So you, you don't want to heat it, get it again too hot, but you can hold that baked potato sometimes in a little washcloth or a paper towel so it's not directly on the eyelid of the potato, but it'll, it'll do a very nice job of maintaining a nice warm temperature for quite a while. That's a fabulous home remedy. Thank you for sharing that. Our uh, listeners will love it. We've heard of a machine that ophthalmologists can actually use that heats up the eyelid and kind of massages it as well. Pretty pricey, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Have you had any experience with that, and does that work? Yes, that's commercially available. That's a device that uh, uses uh, some heat, some warm water, and it, uh, it, it's uh, some of my doctors say it's a, sort of like they imagine a, a spa treatment for your eyelids. And um, there are uh, some patients who report uh, substantial and, and for them dramatic improvement as a result of this treatment which is designed to loosen up the secretions in the oil glands and and massage them out. So one of the we, – we think the problem is these um, oily secretions in our eyelid glands can uh, thicken and cause the glands to back up and stop uh, flowing, kind of like uh, teenagers get acne in their skin as the pores of our oil glands get blocked up. And um, in, in those people who get beneficial effect, as you said, it can be a bit pricey, but they may go for, say, six months between treatments and feel that it causes, in their case, substantial improvement in their quality of life. So so they uh, feel that it's worth, uh, worth doing that. Now, you mentioned oil, and there are some ophthalmologists who believe that Diet can have an impact on dry eye and that one should maybe change the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids. And if you eat certain kinds of foods or certain kinds of oils, it will be beneficial. Is there any science to support that? There is some science that says the so-called Mediterranean diet can be uh, helpful, that uh, oils seen in uh, some fish and maybe uh, uh, olive oil can be uh, can reduce inflammation, actually, uh, which uh, seems to be a common theme in some of the conditions that cause dry eye and uh, help protect against development of some eye problems, uh, including dry eye. So... Um, I have a reservation tonight at a Greek restaurant. I love Greek food, and I do believe there probably are. There's a substantial body of evidence from a number of of uh, sources, such as uh, looking at uh, questionnaires of patients, how often do you tend to eat different kinds of foods, that this um, so-called Mediterranean diet and the uh, fish oils and uh, some of the healthy vegetable oils may help protect against development of eye diseases. Are there any things that people should avoid? For example, we spoke oh, probably a decade, two decades ago, more than likely, to an ophthalmologist who said the preservatives in some of the over-the-counter artificial tears 
are actually counterproductive. Does that still hold up? I believe that was Dr. Jeffrey Gilbard who uh, alerted us to that, uh, as Terry said, uh, two decades ago. I agree with him. Unfortunately, he's passed away, Dr. Gilbard, but uh, I couldn't agree with that observation more. The preservative levels required by the FDA in the eyedrop bottles that we have, either with medicines or with our artificial tears, are quite high. The preservative levels have to be quite high in order to prevent bacteria growing in the bottle uh, in between when the bottle's opened and used. And it might, a bottle sometimes, and some people may last months. So the concentration of preservatives, benzylconium chloride is a particularly commonly used one, the concentrations can be quite high, high enough that uh, we know that benzylconium chloride is one of the most toxic <laughs> chemicals that can be applied to the surface of the eye. Just as it'll kill bacteria, it will irritate and damage the cells on the surface of the eye, damage the cell membranes. So um, often we find that people find using artificial teardrops that are preserved, they start to feel worse after a while. And so um, I strongly encourage my patients with dry eye to obtain only unpreserved uh, eye drops on, and use only the unpreserved uh, artificial tears and ointments for their eyes. Dr. McDonald, what are the most common causes of vision loss? So we're going to switch from dry eyes to things that can actually affect our vision. What are the most common causes and, and how do we prevent them? How do we treat them? In working age Americans, diabetic retinopathy is uh, the number one, and that's uh, in the United States, and that's because of the basically epidemic of obesity and diabetes in this country. Those people, um, in addition to treating the underlying diabetes and hopefully through diet and exercise, uh, controlling their weights, uh, they need to be regularly screened for evidence of uh, diabetic retinopathy because early detection and treatment has been proven clearly and convincingly to reduce the risk of ultimate severe vision loss from that condition. Among older age Americans, the scourge right now is uh, AMD, age-related macular degeneration. This is a horrific condition. It robs people after a, a lifetime of working hard. It robs them. Now they're in retirement. They should be enjoying their golden years, reading, golfing, having fun. They lose their central vision, many of them. And so their ability to golf goes away. Their ability to read goes away. Their ability to recognize people's faces may go away. And it's, it's heartbreaking. They often become socially reclusive. And that is uh, there are millions of Americans uh, with this condition. Every year about a quarter million develop the worst form of it, the so-called wet form with abnormal blood vessels growing. There are, uh, again, uh, treatments, FDA-approved treatments for this condition, and it requires that people be screened regularly, particularly as they get closer and closer to those golden years because it is age-related. It's much more common in people in their 60s than people in their 50s and more common in the 70s and 60s and so on and so forth. 
So it's really key that people, particularly if they have a family history, because we know 75% of the risk of developing AMD is related to your genes. It's related to your family history. So if mom or dad or older brothers or sisters have this diagnosis, that means you need to go and get checked uh, regularly, probably every year. What would be some of the symptoms that would alert someone that they might be getting into trouble? Well, with macular generation, sometimes uh, they don't notice too much until all of a sudden there's they notice a big drop in the vision. But uh, what might happen is there's a little more difficulty with reading. Maybe they need brighter lights and maybe they their reading glasses just don't seem to do the trick so much anymore. Those are the kinds of things that might happen, and uh, I would encourage people experiencing those to get checked out uh, promptly. Now, as a pharmacologist, I would have to say that the new treatments for macular degeneration are quite extraordinary. I, I don't know if breakthrough is the right term. Tell us a little bit about these drugs and how they've changed treatment in the last decade or so. When I was a resident many years ago, when patients would develop these blood vessels and uh, bleeding and leakage in the back of the eye, my professors would say to me, there's nothing we can do. Explain to them there's nothing we can do, but at least they'll have some of their side vision left. Today, we have medications that sometimes people use the term miracle undeservedly. I think they're miracle medicines. I believe they deserve that term. They uh, require an injection into the eye, and this injection of this medicine, it's uh, usually uh, an antibody, uh, is an antibody against a chemical that causes these blood vessels to grow, that stimulates the growth and leakage and bleeding from these vessels in the back of the eye. And there are people where a few days after this injection, their vision starts to clear right up, and they have a dramatic Reversal, Maybe the uh, from severe vision loss, they go back to normal. In some people, it's quite remarkable. And others, on average, they improve. Some, some as I said, very dramatically, some less. And some, it's more that they, they stop worsening. And, and these folks have to come in every maybe four to six weeks, four to eight weeks, to be checked regularly because if the blood vessels start to return, then they need another treatment. And there are some people that may need multiple injections say, over the course of a year to keep these blood vessels under control. But it's been essentially a miracle that these drugs originally developed as anti-cancer treatments have proven to work so well for this eye disease. So these are the anti-angiogenesis medications, right? That's exactly right. And Avastin was probably one of the first. There's been a lot of controversy about the cost and what eye doctors are doing to perhaps save patients money? Well, you're quite right. The first drug, Avastin, has never, I believe still, never been approved by the FDA to use for the eye, for use for AMD. It is approved as a, originally it was approved to treat cancer, colon cancer. And the, uh, the drug work by stopping the blood vessels from growing into the tumor and feeding the tumor. So if the tumor wasn't getting fed by the blood vessels, it wouldn't grow and then spread to other parts of the body. So some uh, clever uh, doctors said, well, let's try. What if we put this in the eye? Would it work on those blood vessels? And it does. 
It works in the blood vessels of AMD. It works in the blood vessels of diabetic retinopathy and some other uh, eye diseases that are characterized by the growth of abnormal blood vessels. So Avastin begins to uh, work, and what they do is they take a vial uh, that's going to be used for a person with cancer, and it might be quite expensive, and they can divide it up into lots of little different um, short, small injections. It could treat a whole bunch of people to the point where one vial that would normally be used for one cancer patient could treat 20 or so um, eye patients and and do it at quite a low cost of about $50 for the drug. Um, The drugs that have actually been developed to use for the eye and are FDA approved for the eye, they may cost a lot more. They may cost $1,200 per dose. So you can see that there's a dramatic um, incentive for particularly patients have to pay part of that bill for people to consider using the much less expensive but not FDA-approved version of this anti-VEGF, anti-neovascularization agent than the FDA-approved, much more expensive version. The People's Pharmacy Podcast is brought to you in part by Mighty Muscadine Grapeberry King of the Superfruits, 100% natural plant-based supplements, juice, snacks, and more. The muscadine grape is a berry, providing greater health benefits than blueberries, cranberries, and the whole berry family. With oxidative damage-fighting antioxidants to support cardiovascular, immune system, and joint health. At Mighty Muscadine, full-time chemists and food scientists check all their products for quality and purity. Find out more online at MightyMuscadine.com. And right now, when you order online, you'll save 20% on all Mighty Muscadine Grape products by entering the code MIGHTY20. That's M-I-G-H-T-Y-2-0. This People's Pharmacy Podcast is brought to you in part by Verizona.com. Verizona Lab offers home health tests that allow you to monitor your hormones and health conditions. You can take control of the quantitative assessment of your health and learn about male and female hormone balance, the stress hormone cortisol, leaky gut, gluten intolerance, or your gut microbiome. Take a more active role in tracking your health and take 20% off your first order of a mail-in testing opportunity with the discount code PEOPLE. That's P-E-O-P-L-E, all uppercase. To learn more, go to Verizana.com. That's V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A.com. Dr. McDonald, there are um, some areas in medicine today where there's quite a bit of, uh, I would say, uh, confusion and maybe even controversy. And, And one of the major areas has to do with dietary supplements or in particular vitamins and minerals. Of all the health professionals we've interviewed over the last couple of decades, it seems as if eye doctors, ophthalmologists, are more enthusiastic about vitamins and minerals than almost any other health professional. Why is that? The reason we're more enthusiastic is we have hard scientific evidence that we can point to that shows 
that uh, a special type of uh, supplement preparation of vitamins and uh, antioxidants actually can slow the development and the progression of early forms of age-related macular degeneration. So uh, this is a study funded and supported by the National Eye Institute, which is the part of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, that deals with eye disease. So we have what we consider to be the top-level scientific information from studies of hundreds of patients showing that it is possible in people starting to develop this disease to uh, slow or delay or possibly even prevent the progression of vision loss from age-related macular degeneration. So every ophthalmologist essentially that I know who doesn't smoke, uh, if they start to develop AMD, they will put themselves on this medication. Now, the reason I say don't smoke is there's some suggestion that in smokers, if they take this uh, preparation, uh, it's called the AREDS preparation, A-R-E-D-S, age-related eye disease study preparation. In some patients who are smokers, if they go on this preparation, it might increase their risk of developing lung cancer. So so um, for smokers, it may be a different situation, but for everybody else, I think the evidence is is in. There are actually supplements that you can find uh, in the pharmacy and health food store that, that actually say on them AREDS or AREDS2. Is that something people should look for? Exactly. That's the formulation that was used in the study. So that's the one we have hard data on. Others uh, may uh, tweak the formula a little bit because they think maybe this is would be helpful, but but it's the AREDS formulations, the AREDS original and then the AREDS 2 in a subsequent study that was done for basically the same problem uh, that are scientifically proven to be effective. I will say there was some thought that maybe these uh, preparations would reduce the risk of people developing cataract. The study did not uh, support that. There's no evidence that they either reduce or prevent cataract formation. But for AMD, they were helpful. Are there any supplements or any dietary approaches that can reduce the um, progression of cataracts? Uh, Scientifically proven, the answer is no. Um, Many ophthalmologists that I know wear uh, sunglasses when they're out on a sunny day or they're golfing or they're out on the water. Maybe also they'll wear a hat with a brim to reduce the amount of short wavelength light and ultraviolet light that reaches the lens of the eye uh, with the hope that it will reduce cataract formation. Uh, I'm certainly one of those doctors that does that. But in terms of uh, high-level scientific evidence to prove that that's effective, we don't have that. Dr. McDonald, we've been reading about a specific type of retina scan that may have a role in very early diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. I think these are also scans that ophthalmologists are using to detect eye diseases. It's, do you remember, Joe? It is a a type of CT scan that measures the thickness of the retina. Can you fill us in on this? Sure. OCT, optical coherence tomography. And um, many, many, many ophthalmologist offices in the United States today have 
these devices. They've been very helpful in diagnosing retina problems and monitoring the treatment of people with diseases like diabetic retinopathy and age-related macular degeneration. But the, uh, an interesting observation recently from scientists at the uh, Washington University in St. Louis was that perhaps um, this OCT could be helpful in a different way, and that is detecting some signs, perhaps early signs, of uh, Alzheimer's. Now, as, as um, many of your listeners probably know, the eyes, the back part of the eye, the retina, it's basically brain, brain tissue. In fact, the eyes form by two bulges from the front of the developing brain when we're in utero being formed in, in our mothers. Eye doctors like to say actually the brain is formed by bulging of the eyes in the backwards, but either way, it's the same essentially neurologic tissue, the the retina that sees light in the eyes is the same kind of um, generally uh, n- nervous tissue with neurons that uh, populate our brains. And so perhaps it's not surprising that a condition that impacts the brain in such a major way like Alzheimer's might be have manifestations in the retina. And these um, very observant uh, doctors uh, in St. Louis observed that with this OCT device, they could see a somewhat different pattern of blood vessels in the retina of the eyes of some patients, and those patients with that pattern were more likely to have uh, early forms of this dementia of Alzheimer's compared to the patients that did not have that configuration of the blood vessels. So if that study is confirmed, uh, we potentially have a new way to detect the early onset of Alzheimer's, which would hopefully allow us to study treatments and, and one day to prevent or cure the disease, but at the very least to perhaps alert a person that they may be uh, at risk for developing this problem uh, at some point in the future. Dr. McDonald, when should a patient request a retina scan? Uh, This is not a routine test that's done in the uh, ophthalmologist's office, but I suspect that there there are situations where this retina scan might be very useful at catching something early. It's not routine. In fact, Medicare and most insurers say they only want to pay for it if there's a clear reason for the doctor to obtain it, what they call medical necessity. So a doctor will often, when ordering it, say, well, I'm going to order this test because there's uh, the patient has some visual complaints for which other ways of uh, testing haven't found an explanation. Or they have diabetic retinopathy with some swelling in the retina, and they may need a treatment, and I want to do the OCT to prove how much swelling is present and and then to repeat it in the future to show that my treatment is having the desired effect. Um, we may do it for people with glaucoma to look at the um, what damage the pressure in the eye might have caused to the nerve in the retina tissue in the back of the eye. So there may be a multitude of reasons why we do it. We don't normally do it just for fun or just to do the test for no particular reason. We 
we usually do it because we have a suspicion that there is a condition that might be diagnosed by the test or that the results from the test can help us guide the proper treatment for the right patient. Dr. McDonald, you mentioned a different condition we haven't talked about yet, glaucoma. Can you tell us briefly what is it and what do we do about it? Glaucoma is uh, very common. About 2% of uh, the adult population in the United States has a diagnosis of glaucoma. It's a disease characterized by damage to the optic nerve and often loss of our visual field, loss of side vision that gradually gets starts out at the periphery and gets closer and closer to our central vision. So in that way, it's the opposite of macular degeneration that starts right in the center. People have called it the sneak thief of sight because it starts to take away side vision to the point where people don't notice it, and they only notice it when it gets so severe that it impinges right on their central vision. It's typically associated with high pressures in the eye. Pressure in the eye, like high blood pressure, is something that doctors can detect with our instruments when people come in for their exam. Because high pressure in the eye almost never is felt by the patient, they can't tell they have high pressure. It's part of the reason why people need to go in for regular eye exams so that the test will show that they have it. It's more common in African Americans. It's more common in people with a family history of glaucoma. So people with those so-called risk factors should be particularly diligent in making sure that they get their eyes examined and screened for uh, glaucoma. Dr. McDonald, we have used, not we, but you as, uh, as eye doctors, have used beta blockers for many, many years, oral medicines, but more specifically, they're topical eye drops that contain uh, beta blocker medicine that used to be used primarily for heart patients. There are new medicines, really quite impressive drugs. Can you tell us a little bit about the new generation and how they can sometimes change the color of the iris. The uh, prostaglandin analogs have been a breakthrough when it comes to uh, treating patients with glaucoma. Uh, one reason is uh, that instead of being used multiple times per day, most of the beta blockers had to be used at least twice per day. These uh, prostaglandin analogs can often be used just once a day. And for um, an elderly patient who may have difficulty with putting in all those, taking all those pills and putting all those medicines on board every day, to be able to treat a condition with just one drop a day is really very nice, and and people like it a lot. The um, prostaglandins tend to have uh, very minimal in the way of side effects. However, there is one that you mentioned that can uh, affect people and they need to be told about it, and that is that uh, over time it can lead to increased pigmentation of the iris, the colored part of the eye, the part that um, uh, dilates and constricts during the course of the day between bright light and dark light. And so uh, the tendency is for the iris in some patients to become darker with time. So somebody who's got a blue-eyed iris, that's the iris color, may, uh, after years of taking the, one of these prostaglandin drops, it starts to turn more a brown color. 
or someone who starts out with a brown iris, it may turn a deeper brown. But in our belief, the risk of losing vision is is, is such a, a serious concern that it's it's something that that we feel the benefits more than outweigh the risk associated with having your eye color change a bit. It seems like ophthalmology has been changing radically in the last couple of decades. You've got this miracle, as you've called it, this breakthrough drug for macular degeneration. You have this really uh, extraordinary new class of drugs that are being prescribed uh, for people who have glaucoma. What about cataracts? That's another pretty common condition. It's our understanding that um, the surgery and the implants have also improved rather dramatically. Cataract surgery is the most common surgery paid for by Medicare. So you are exactly right. It's very common. There are millions of cataract surgeries performed every year in the United States, somewhere between three and a half, four million these days. And the surgery is extremely successful, has a very high success rate. The lens implants are quite good. There's one thing that we'd really like to have, and that's being uh, worked on by industry very diligently these days, and that is a lens implant that we could put in to replace the the cloudy lens, which is what a cataract is that we take out. We'd like a lens implant that we could put back in that could adjust its focus so people could look and see clearly far away, and then when they when they pick up a piece of paper, they can um, see immediately switch to seeing up close. So this lens would autofocus or well, what we call actually, accommodate. Dr. McDonald, mm-hmm. we have a dear friend uh, from graduate school days who is in China, and he reports that he had cataract surgery there with precisely that accommodating lens. He said, they're way ahead of us over here. What's taken us so long in the States? Well, that's interesting. Uh, I don't know the details of your friend, obviously. There is one lens that has been approved by the FDA in the United States to accommodate, but most um, ophthalmologists feel that the amount of accommodation it provides is is limited. So what often uh, happens in this country is people will get a lens, one eye for distance, and the other lens and the other eye will let them read, and they do something called monovision. But there are companies in Europe and Israel and the United States all trying to come up with what I think is the perfect uh, accommodating lens. If you tell me they've perfected it in China, I'm very eager to, <laughs> to uh, get the details on that and uh, see what, uh, what happens. But I think as far as innovation goes, the United States usually is, is out there at the forefront when it comes to, to medical devices and, uh, and new, new drug therapies. As we're talking about accommodation, let me ask about nearsightedness. This is becoming more common everywhere in the world, including China. There's lots and lots and lots of kids who need glasses, whereas perhaps in the past, not quite so many needed glasses to be able to see well at a distance because they have all become nearsighted. Any ideas to what's driving this? and what we can do about it. There are quite good data that nearsightedness or myopia is uh, caused by both a combination of nature and nurture. So if your parents are nearsighted, you're much more likely to be nearsighted. Certain racial groups, uh, you mentioned China, much more 
common to have myopia in China than in European-derived populations or African-American populations, which are more typical in this country. It's increased with increased educational levels. So we know that the more near work you do, the more school you go to, medical school, pharmacy school, law school, the graduates of those uh, schools are much more likely to have nearsightedness than people who stop school at high school or college. There's also some very, I think, for many, many ways, very interesting data, uh, including a number of studies done in Hong Kong and China, showing that pushing children outdoors during the day and making them take a break during the school day and play out in the playground actually statistically reduces the amount of myopia or growth of the eyes. So remember our mothers forcing us to go outside and play during the day um, is a good thing. And probably staying indoors all day, whether it's reading or playing video games or staring at your smartphone or iPad or computer screen, particularly as a child, is not ideal. And I think as a species, we've increasingly turned into an indoor species, and being outside where the thought is the natural light outside is probably helpful at um, reducing this uh, tendency towards myopia. So if I had some young children or grandchildren around, I would make sure that the TV gets turned off or their uh, computers get taken away a bit. And uh, and they're forced to go out there and play and uh, and spend time in the great outdoors. And the, the benefits are probably multiple, not only to be healthier and more physically fit and perhaps less chance of obesity, but it probably uh, scientifically we can show it reduces the chance that they'll have uh, more advanced n- degrees of nearsightedness. Dr. McDonald, what about stress in the eye. I know that when I'm on a huge deadline, and this has happened in the past when we have to deliver a book and we only have a few months left to go, my eyelid starts twitching. Are there other things that stress does to the eye? There are. uh, Stress can be hard to measure. Uh, So it's scientifically, it's quite a bit of a challenge to look at that question um, the way we'd like to. But uh, we know that there are certain uh, conditions. One of them is a retina problem called central serous retinopathy or central serous chororetinopathy that is thought to be related to stress. Our bodies produce um, sort of an endogenous steroid, cortisol, and that that may cause this uh, abnormal functioning of the retina uh, in these different episodes when we're under stress. So uh, strategies to maintain our stress at a reasonable level are probably uh, good things, and including when it comes to the eye. And why would my eyelid twitch when I feel like I'm under deadline pressure? The medical term we use for eyelid twitching is myokymia. There are these uh, very um, fine muscles under the skin of the eyelid. The skin of the eyelid is is thin, and so you can actually see the muscles twitching. And it's thought perhaps some of the um, compounds that we have endogenously released in our bodies can stimulate this muscle contraction. We also know that drinking lots of tea or coffee, caffeinated beverages, which some people might do 
if they're feeling under stress and having to work hard, stay up and work to meet a deadline, they may take more caffeinated beverages. That can stimulate this same problem as well to cause this myokymia. So um, it's, a, it's a sort of excitability of the nerve and muscle together that leads to this um, twitching, what people observe as eyelid twitching, which, uh, if you get it, can be somewhat disturbing if you've never had it before. Dr. McDonald, we are almost out of time. What should we all be doing to try to keep our eyes as healthy as possible as we grow older? Well, our eyes are part of our body, so the better we treat our bodies, the better uh, regular exercise, good diet, both are probably uh, clearly associated with better eye health. But particularly for the eye, um, I think it really is important that Americans be sure to get their regular screening exam. For young Americans, the recommendation is at least every couple years. For older Americans in that Medicare age group, say 60, 65 and older, every year uh, they should be checked. If they have a family history of uh, significant eye disease, if they have diabetes, then it must be every year and more frequently if uh, some suspicion is found on an initial exam, then their doctor can advise them uh, whether they need to come in more frequently. Dr. Peter McDonald. Thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to Dr. Peter McDonald, director of the Johns Hopkins Wilmer Eye Institute. He's a professor of ophthalmology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. The People's Pharmacy is produced at the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. The People's Pharmacy theme music is by B.J. Lederman. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, probiotic products made in Germany from hypoallergenic organic ingredients. That's K-A-Y-A Biotics.com. If you'd like to purchase a CD of today's show or any other People's Pharmacy episode, you can call 800-732-2334. Today's show, number 1,154. That number again, 800-732-2334. You can find it at our website, peoplespharmacy.com. When you visit our site, you can share your thoughts about today's show. Have you had cataract surgery? We'd like to hear how it worked for you. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter or subscribe to the free podcast of the show. You'll never miss another episode, and you can share it with a friend. When you sign up for the free newsletter, you'll get our free e-guide to our favorite home remedies. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thanks so much for listening today. Please do join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. 
but producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.